And thank you for sharing that, Kelly. That's power. I'm a I'm a words guy in songs and the powerful lyrics in that song. So thank you, thank you, Kelly. Children's Church, uh, you can be dismissed. While they're headed out, just uh, for parents wondering, okay, if Michael and Heather are leaving, what does that mean for Children's Church? So we've asked uh, eight couples, and we've asked those couples to ask an, at least one other couple to uh, lead Children's Church. So uh, those eight couples will take Sundays over a two-month rotation and lead Children's Church, just so, so your kids will be in good hands, same, same, same material, same gospel project. But we've asked uh, eight couples, and they have agreed to uh, lead Children's Church. Parker, how you doing, buddy? That's Bible Man. He says his name is Bible Man. So uh, I get to hang out with Bible Man every Tuesday. So uh, while they're headed out, go ahead and turn me to Colossians 1. It is interesting that uh, Kelly Wood mentioned that today. Because uh, as I thought about Colossians 1 and prayed through that passage that we'll look at today, and Paul gets much of his theology, um, he leans heavily on Isaiah. Even as Daniel sang uh, the song this morning talking about, you split the sea so I could walk right through it. In Isaiah, there is a very real sense that our salvation is seen as a second exodus. Isaiah, Isaiah builds that theology that our salvation is really a second exodus of what God did with Israel in freeing them from the Egyptian slavery. In Isaiah 40, we've talked about the unrivaled nature, that this series is unrivaled. In Isaiah 40, Isaiah says, Do you not know, have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. He does not, his understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. As Kelly sang that song this morning, I thought about that passage in Isaiah. Multiple times in Isaiah 40 alone, Isaiah makes this statement, To whom... Will you liken the Lord, that the Lord would be their equal? Think about that. There, there's none like the God of this Bible. He's unrivaled, he's unequal. I mean, that's, that's the point that Isaiah makes over and over and over again, even in the context of Isaiah 40. And the context of Isaiah 40 is for 39 chapters, Isaiah has preached to a people who are deep in sin, and here's what he's told them. Judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. Bab Babylon is going to overtake you. And in the midst of that, in the midst of that judgment, God, as He always does, He offers hope. And their hope was in the Lord. Their hope was in the Lord. Right after 39 chapters... And from 40 to 66, here's what Isaiah says. From the stump, if you were a tree, you're getting cut down, and yet from that stump, there's going to arise a Savior, and His name is Jesus. I'm going to provide a Savior. I'm going to provide a King. I'm going to bring forth my true King. And that was their hope. And, and that's our hope. And, and Jesus, again, he did not come on the scene out of nowhere. He did not just show up. He came promised by God. He was Israel's king that had been promised to them all throughout their history. And yet they crucified him. God was in Christ. He was reconciling a lost world, his creation. He was making a way for his creation who had been separated from him through their sin to be reconciled back to their God. And he did it through his king, Jesus Christ. And what Paul puts forth in, Galatia, in, in Col Galatians, I'm, I'm Col Colossians, or Colossians, where are we? I combined Galatians and Colossians there, forgive me. It's been a weird morning. I woke up this morning and it was 7 o'clock and I was like, what day is it? I didn't even know what day it was. I said, Karen, what day is it? She's like, Chris, you had to get up and get out of here. I'm like, 
It's Saturday, isn't it? No, that was yesterday. That was yesterday. I need a Saturday for my Saturday. Do what? Exactly. I was shocked that Florida State won. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, wonders never cease. But Paul here, Paul here will put forth, again, he, he, he is offering an introduction to Colossians, and he begins to emphasize a couple of themes that are going to run through this entire book. And one of them is the idea of knowing and understanding. Twice in verse 9 and also in verse 10, Paul speaks to knowledge of understanding. Paul's going to pave a way here through this of that, that believers would know that they would understand the gospel through which they've been saved. And that the point is to that they would be able to not be, not be deceived, not be drawn away by false teachers, not think that there's something else to be gained out there, that there's some other level of spirituality that they can gain intimacy with God through. He's saying, no, understand what God has done through Jesus Christ and the sufficiency of that. And if they would understand that, these false teachers would have nothing to tempt them with. No understanding at all. I mean, no, nothing to offer them through their understanding of the gospel. Go back to the gospel. But, but also, Paul is going to start paving the way for them to understand the, the powerful work that God has done in the gospel. That even Gentiles, like you and I, have been brought into God's family twice in in verse 11, we see the idea of power. And twice in 13, we see the idea of power. And, and what Paul is teaching us here, and, and really this is a, he's praying, he's praying, the, the, the awesomeness here is he's praying for a group of people that he's never met, but he's heard of their faith. And this is what he prays for them. That they would understand the gospel and that they would understand the power that's in the gospel. That they would be secure because of that. And, and hear me, hear me. To misunderstand the gospel, it is not simply a, 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 a mistake. It's not simply a deficient mental act. It is a denial of God's power on behalf of His people. To not understand the gospel, it is the denial of God. You are robbing yourself of power. You're robbing yourself of security in the midst of trials and struggles and, and everything that Kelly just and the team just sang about. Listen, understand the gospel. Understand the depth and the power of the gospel. It's interesting. That's not how you and I would approach troubles. That's not how you and I would approach gaining security, and yet that's consistently how the Bible approaches it. Understand what God has done for you through Jesus Christ. And the problem is this. If we're honest, we've treated the gospel as something that you get saved by, but not something that you live by. We, again, we said it two weeks ago or last week, whenever it was. The gospel is not simply a plan of salvation. It is power to live as God's children. Everything we need, not only to be saved, but to live by, is found in the gospel. And that's what Paul is saying here. Understand the gospel. As a Christian, we will spend the rest of our lives plumbing the depths of the gospel. The reason why we are so the reason why we're we're oftentimes weak and all these other things is because we do not understand the gospel. The reason why we're tempted, the reason why we're looking for all this satisfaction and all these things in these false places and why, we're, why we too are deceived is because we do not understand the gospel. And Paul is putting forth here the unrivaled power of Christ and the gospel that God authored through him. There's a tendency for us to look beyond the gospel, to look for some spiritual fulfillment somewhere else, even to look for the things of this world to offer you what God has offered you only in the gospel. To understand who we are, to understand our adoption, to understand the, the, the rescue that God has done, all of that is bound up in the gospel. That's why Paul would say the same thing, Isaiah, who will you liken this God to? The false gods of this world, they have not done for you what God has done for you. Who will you liken him? Who will you, who will you hold up as his equal? 
The, the point is, that's a rhetorical question. There is none like him. None. And, and Paul ties everything back to having been brought into God's family through the gospel. You have been brought in to God's family through the gospel. That in and of itself was a miraculous display of power. That was unfathomable to a Jew in that day. That Gentiles are part of the family of God? Yes. And what Paul is begging for here is that they would fully, fully... Now, they're saved, and yet he's telling them, go back to the gospel. Fully understand the gospel. That's what he's telling them. He's, he's saying, fully understand the gospel. That's interesting. You don't move, what he's saying is, we don't move past the gospel, believer. You've been saved, good. Go back to the gospel and keep digging. Go back to the gospel and keep understanding what God has done for you. The power that's there. To fully understand, that's, that's where our power lies. To live out this Christian life. We dig into the gospel to understand that though we were once not a people, yet now we are a people. Understand what that means. Understand, as we'll see in verse 13, that you've been rescued and transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the light. Dig into the gospel to understand what that means. And so, and, and, and so as your main point, you see it on your handout, that Paul is... is, is praying on their behalf that they would be filled with the knowledge of God and His power in redeeming us through the work of Christ so that they would live worthy lives. So that they would live worthy lives. And that runs so contrary to Christianity today. You weren't saved so that you could have your sins forgiven and then go on living however you want to live, but oh, when you die, you, by the way, you get to go to heaven. No, you were saved that you would live a worthy life for the king who saved you. And as you dig into the gospel, you'll understand that your life becomes a celebration in God's, of God's grace in making a way for us to be adopted and become his child. When you, understand, when you understand that you've been rescued, when you understand the depth of your sin and how alienated you were from God, and now you're His, your, your life becomes a celebration of that grace. It doesn't become a trampling of that grace. You've been adopted. And that's what Paul digs in here, starting in verse 9. He says, For this reason also, since the day we heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins there's a lot there and starting in verse 9 here's what paul says believers are to be consumed with the knowledge of all that god has done on their behalf consumed consumed the word filled here he says for this reason we have asked that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will the word means controlled it literally means to be dominated by to be dominated by we as believers ought to be amazed we ought to be consumed we ought to be overwhelmed with the fact that god saved us and want to know about a god that would do that and interesting, he says, filled with the knowledge of his will. This is not a knowledge that we tend to think about. When we think of God's will, and I hear, I get this question, I hear this question all the time. What's God's will? What's God's will? What's God's will? 99.9% .9 of the time, we're referring to this private, individual will. Meaning, who does he want me to marry? Where does he want me to go to college? I've heard one person, one lady tried to tell me that God tells her what shoes to wear. You know, I'm not even going there. Like, as a guy, I, got, I don't have a whole lot of choices. It doesn't require a lot of prayer. Is it the brown ones or the black ones? And usually it's like, what belt am I wearing? So match the shoes to that. That's about as far as I can get. 
if we're honest, when we think about that, we're thinking about something and it's totally isolated from the gospel. We've not connected his will at all to the gospel. It's self. It's about self. I may be wrong in this, but I'm not sure God cares in the sense of where you go to college as much as he cares of who you are when you go to that college and if you're about his gospel. If you can take that gospel to the University of Alabama, go there. If you can take that gospel and be sold out to the Lord to the University of Florida, definitely go there. (laughs) Wherever. Auburn. Go to Auburn. I think what God cares about and what we'll see here today is, are you His? Are you going there to glorify Him? Then go. Then go. Certainly pray about it. I'm not saying that at all. He does give wisdom, and I'm saying that. I'm, all I'm saying this, you can't go to the wrong college. Period. I mean, if God has put on your heart to go somewhere, go. In 1 Corinthians 10, he says that. If any unbeliever puts food in front of you, invites you to come over to eat, and you want to go, go. Again, you're going to glorify God. The knowledge that Paul wants here is a knowledge that's tied to the gospel. And when you see it on your handout, what Paul refers to here is a knowledge of what God has done first through Jesus Christ. This is a God-centered knowledge. It's a gospel-centered knowledge. It's not primarily about you, but it's primarily about what has God, God has done for you. It points to being saved. It points to being redeemed. It points to being rescued. It, and it's our response to that. And it's going to be what paves the way for Paul's argument in the rest of chapter 2. Because of their response, because of them having been saved. In, in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, a similar setting, and this is what it says. For this is the will of God. Very clearly, for this is the will of God. Guess what comes next? Your sanctification. Here's what God wants from you. For you to, be, for you to grow up in His grace. Romans 8, 29 says the same thing. For those whom he called, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he sanctified. Those whom he sanctified, he glorified. To be conformed to the image of God. God saved you to control you, to make you look like him, to go out and live as representatives in a world, to be lights among darkness, to glorify him. That's his will. It's a gospel-centered thing. It's a God-centered will. It's not self-centered. His will for you is that you would be conformed to the image of his son. And that's what I'm saying. If If that was your goal, then go wherever you want to go to college. Study whatever you want because you'll glorify God in that field. No matter what it is. Go. And in the Greek, this knowledge, it's not some superficial awareness of facts. It's not a trivia contest type of knowledge. It literally points to the fullest knowledge. It means to be completely certain about something. It's that same thing we said in Hebrews 11:2 that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the confidence of things not yet seen. And even in verse 10, it's about, uh, it's to culminate in a life that's lived to the glory of God. It's a gospel-centered knowledge. Even Paul in Philippians 3.10, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, but also the fellowship of his sufferings. It is a gospel-centered knowledge. It's about his king. And, And what he's saying is we as believers never stop plumbing the depths of the gospel. And our lives are to be overflows of of gratitude for what God has done in us and for us. And and you see it on your handout. That's where the gratitude is sourced. 
continually digging in and trying to understand the gospel more fully. Never, we never lose amazement of the grandeur of the gospel that though we were once alienated from God, now we are saved, chosen children of God. That, that ought to be amazing. That should amaze us for the rest of our lives. And digging into how and why God would do that. What it means to be a son and daughter of the king. What it means to now be a citizen of heaven. And, and how do citizens of heaven live? How do they glorify their king? Consumed with that. Consumed with glorifying our king. Consumed with living for our king. That's what Paul says here in verse 9. And in verse 10, you see number 2. The purpose for believers being consumed was that they would live lives worthy of the Lord and please Him in all they do. So that, he says, you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects. I Ephesians, if you were to go to the book of Ephesians, it, it very much resembles the book of Colossians. The, the material there is very, very similar in Ephesians. And in, in, in Ephesians 1 through 3, God puts forth the gospel. And beginning in Ephesians 4, 1, he says, Therefore, do not walk as, the gen as you formerly walked. There's a change. Even in Ephesians 5, 15 and 16, he says, Do not walk as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your days, because they are evil. He says, Be careful how you walk. Be careful how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. Be careful. Make the most of your days. The, the whole purpose is that we would glorify our king. Not, not to live selfishly for ourselves. It's about the king who saved us. It's living in light of having been rescued. And listen, everything, everything that God commands of us, everything he calls for us, makes sense once you understand that you were once alienated and now you've been adopted. When you understand that our lives are to be lived for the king and you understand what God first did for us, every single command makes sense. Even Romans 12, 18, where he says, do good to those who persecute you and all, you know, heap, uh, do good to your enemies and all that. Why does that make sense? Because that's exactly what God did for you in the gospel first. Romans 5, 8, but while God, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, enemies, it says in verse 10, Christ died for us. So me loving my enemy is what? I'm simply glorifying the one who first loved me when I was his enemy. I'm reflecting the character of God. See, it makes sense. For God to tell me to love my enemies makes sense when I realize that I was an enemy of the one who called, who, who, who created me, and yet he crucified his son to reconcile me to himself. Now you go do likewise. It makes sense. But it starts with a knowledge and an understanding of what God has first done for us. And the goal, you see it on your handout, the goal of the gospel and our redemption is not just deliverance from our sin and guilt and punishment, but the sharing of God's character and fellowship. Fellowship. God has invited you to himself. And we're to work that out. In all of our lives, we're to work out what it means to be saved, what it means to be a child of the king. That's what Paul says in Philippians 2.12, but work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The next verse is huge, but it is God, verse 13, who is at work in you both to will and work for his good pleasure. Listen, this is not about do's and don'ts. This is not about self-help. This is not about any of those things. This is about plumbing the depths of the gospel, filling up with the Spirit and the Word of God, and then the Word of God lives through you. It's God who is doing it. But it's a Word-centered thing. It's a God-centered endeavor. And what Paul is saying all throughout the Bible is that we as believers are to live in a way that is consistent with our new status as children of God. There's lots of verses that I could share, whether it's Ephesians 4.1, Philippians 1.27. I'll go to a new one. 1 Thessalonians 2.12. Listen to what it says. So that all these things, he was saying, 
And, and in the context, Paul is saying, remember all that we've done for you. Remember who you were. Remember the gospel. We proclaimed you the gospel. You were witnesses to it. And here's what he says. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The goal is that we would walk worthy, that we would represent the kingdom that we've been brought into. Again, Ephesians 4.1 says that same thing. Philippians 1.27, conduct yourselves in a way that's worthy of your calling. And everything, you see it on your handout, everything about our lives and conduct is shaped and fueled by the gospel. By having been brought into God's family. Paul, Paul says it himself later on in Colossians 2.6. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Having been firmly rooted. Having been built up. Again, growing in your knowledge. And, and what we see here is walking worthy is a life that is focused on Christ. It centers on Christ. It is Christ who is the one that we are seeking to please. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 1, which is the context of where we said this 4, 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. He says, finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you, as you receive from us instruction as to how to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still, still more. Do you see where he's saying keep plumbing the depths of the gospel? Keep growing? He says to them, look, you're walking well. You're doing a great job. You know what? Keep, keep excelling still more. Keep growing. Keep understanding. And, and Paul says it in, in Colossians here, to please him in all respects. The, the challenge there is there is no area of my life that I get a pass in in living for myself. I am to every area of my life, I am to dedicate to the glory of God. I don't just say, well, that's, that's the way I live. That, that's for me. No, no, that's for your king. You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Well, that's sports. No, glorify God through sports. Well, this is my private life. It ain't private. You belong to a king. Well, this is, my, this is my work life. You know, if you're going to make it in business, you've got to do this. No, no, no. You glorify God through how you conduct yourself in your business affairs. In every respect, he says, in all respects, learn, learn how to please God. And Paul, the beauty of this passage is he gives us this kind of filter this list, if you will, or, or things to show, hey, here's, here's how you know you're doing a good job. Here are things that ought to be in a person's life who is doing this. And, and I would challenge you to look at yourself. Look at your, do an inventory of your own life. Are, are these characteristics in my life? Is my life marked by these characteristics? Because again, this, the response is not, well, I'm just going to do them. No, go plumb the gospel, go dig into the gospel, go hide the word of God in your heart, understand what God has done for you, and God will do them through you. Please hear me. This is not, the response to this is not, well, I'm just going to go bear much fruit. No. I'm going to be patient. No, no, no. Go dig into the gospel. Go first understand what God has done for you. This is a God-fueled task. This is a God-sized task. Again, because if you do it, you get the glory. If God does it through you, guess who gets the glory? God does. This is not about me being a better person. This is about God living through me. And he says here in, in verse 10, a life that is worthy of the Lord and pleasing to him is a life that bears fruit. Bearing fruit. Fruit in every good work, he says in verse 10. And again, this is a work of the gospel. If you were to go to John 15, he says, Abide in me, and I abide in you. Let my words abide in you, and you will bear much fruit. Listen, Christ is the tree. He's the vine. We're just the branch. You know what the branch does? The branch simply shows off the fruit that the tree and the vine are producing. 
And my job, if you will, is to stay connected. As long as that branch stays connected to the vine, you know what it does? Grapes pop up. Fruit pops up. That branch, and then there's, I think I can, I think I can. No. That vine is rooted in the ground, and that nutrient shows, and all of a sudden, grapes pop up. It's you and I, we're the branch. We're to abide in Christ. He'll bear the fruit. He says not only will a life worthy of God bear fruit, but he says a life that is worthy of the Lord and pleasing to him is a life that increases in its knowledge of God. Increasing, you see there in verse 10, increasing in the knowledge of God. Like, I didn't have to make these things up. Like, they're right there. And what is this increasing? Here's two key areas that you and I need to increase in. Number one, who is God? Understand who God is. Understand his character. Understand Lamentations 3.23, that his loving kindnesses indeed never cease. Understand Isaiah 40, where he says time and time again, who is like me? There's none equal to me. Understand that. Understand Hebrews 13.5, that I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Understand that. Understand Habakkuk 3.17 and 18, that though the fig tree doesn't blossom and there bear no fruit on the vine, you know what Habakkuk says? I will trust in you. No matter what. Why? Because of who God is. Understand James 1, that 17 and 19, that, that he is the father of lights, and in him there is no variation or shifting of shadows. Understand that. But not only who God is, what God has done. I mean, understand what he's done. That's Romans 15, 4. We've said it. But again, that's why we, that one of the reasons we have the scriptures is that we would see God's faithfulness and his mighty acts on our behalf and that we would be steadfast and immovable, that we would have, as Kelly shared, we would have hope. Romans 15, 4 says, you have the scriptures that you might have hope and, and and paul says that that this knowledge ought to be increasing it's the same thing in second peter one he talks about what god has done and add to your faith all these things and he and and, and with all applying all diligence grow 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 why verse eight of second peter one for if these qualities are yours and are increasing same word they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, not to be, I, I don't, I'm not trying to be mean here, but if you take that verse, a believer who is not growing, what does it say about a believer who's not growing? They're not useful. You, you might even say useless. Because he says neither useless Unfruitful sounds it better, Eric. It sounds better than useless. It is Eric, right? Yeah, okay. It is now. If that ain't right, I was going to call you that for the rest of your time here, so just get used to it. But we're to grow. Again, where is it, not, where is it rooted? In the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and listen, this is the beauty. Listen to verse 9 of 2 Peter 1. Where is all this sourced? For he who lacks these qualities, listen to this, the person that is not growing is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. You know what he's saying there? You've wandered away from the gospel. You've forgotten the gospel. You've forgotten who you were apart from Christ. It's gospel-centered. We, we spend the rest of our lives understanding the gospel, believer, tethered to the gospel. Again, even verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain of his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you won't stumble. Why? Because you will be confident in who God is and who you are in God. So come what may, none of that can change. None of that changes that. Who God is, what he's done, namely the gospel. And, and I would bet you most of our struggles as Christians 
are rooted in one of those two places, not really understanding who God is and not really understanding what he's done and how secure you are in that. And that's what 1 Corinthians 3, Hebrew, these verses start, forgive me, start popping in their mind. That's why these sermons end up being longer than they should have. Growth. Paul says, I couldn't come to you as spiritual man, but I had to come to you as infants in Christ. You couldn't, you couldn't drink real, you couldn't handle the meat of the word. I had to come to you with milk. I, I had to come with you the elemental things. He says, by this time, by now, you ought to be teachers, and yet you're still needing milk. He goes on in verse 14 of Hebrews 5 to say, those who have had their senses trained by the word of God learn to discern good and evil. Learn. They've had their senses trained by who God is and what he's done. Growth. Are you growing? Are you growing? Are, are you teaching? Or are, you are you teaching or are you still needing to be taught? Do you still have to have someone feed you or are you able to feed yourself? And better yet, are you able to feed others? Growth. A life that's pleasing to the Lord. Uh, C, a life that is worthy and pleasing to him derives its strength from the awesome glory of God and can face any circumstance. Look what he says in 11. Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. The word there, strengthened, it means of the highest degree. It means unlimited. It literally could read this, that you would be strengthened with the greatest strength imaginable. Where is that source? The gospel. And most of our struggles that we face, the reason why we struggle so much is because it's rooted in a lack of understanding of the gospel. God doesn't love me, you don't understand the gospel. God's not for me, you don't understand the gospel. This is just stronger than me, no, you don't understand the gospel. He that is in you is greater than he who is in the world. If, he, if God is for you, who can be against you? If God has deemed you justified, that he, look at Romans 8. There's no accusation that's going to stick against you because he's already deemed you justified. 1 John 2, run. Little children, I write these things to you so that you will not sin. But if any of you do sin, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ, who stands at the Father to make intercession on your behalf. Be strengthened with that. Strengthened with the character of God. And, and what we see, again, is that the power here, you see it on your handout, these are two different words. Power points to God's strength, which gives us the ability to do what He calls us to do. His might gives us the authority to do what He calls us to do. We not only have the ability, but in Christ we have the authority. Why? Because He's King. He's king. That's, that's what he says. And according to the strength, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. For the attaining of steadfastness. When you understand his power, when you understand his ability, the fruit of, and the strength of that is that you endure with patience whatever you go through. Why? Because God is for you. And when I'm going through stuff and it's about my, it's about my agenda, that's where it's, if my life is about my agenda, struggles, they interrupt my agenda, that creates very much frustration in me. But when my life is about God's agenda and the Word of God says that those struggles actually further what God is doing in my life and Philippians 1, take the gospel to people in places that it would never have gone and 2 Corinthians 4, 16, that it produces in us an eternal weight of glory and all these other things, hey... I can endure. Why? Because it's not about me. It's about the gospel and what God's doing in the gospel. I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying when we have a God, a God confidence, when we're certain about God and what he's doing, we, we gain strength to endure. And, and, and what Paul says here, again, he talks about steadfastness and patience and joy in Christ and through understanding the gospel, we're able to endure hardship and be patient with people. And let's be honest, those are the two areas where we're going to struggle most. Hardship and people. 
where, where Satan is going to want to cause the most disunity and the most struggle amongst God's people, it's going to be through bad circumstances, and it's going to be through relationships with other believers or, bad, or cause disunity. And Paul is saying, look, when you understand the gospel, when you understand not only that God is for you in Romans 8, that nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, and when you understand that every single believer in here was all brought to Christ through grace, None of us earned it, none of us merited it, none of us were worthy of it, none of us deserved it. Equal footing. You know what? I can be patient with you, and you should be patient with me. Why? Because we're all beggars. We're all trying to learn what it means to be saved. We're all trying to grow in that grace. We're in this together. That's part of the reason why we gather every Sunday. We're learning how to love a bunch of people that are totally different than us. Why? Because that's how God first loved us. 1 John 4, this is love, not that you loved God, but that God loved you first. That's how you and I know real love, not worldly love, real love. Look at how God loved you and then love others. Unity, patience. Again, it's all gospel-centered. And we, he says you can do this joyously. Why? Because our joy is in the gospel. It's not in circumstances. It's not rooted there. And it's not rooted with other people. It's rooted in the gospel. And nothing can separate us from God who, through Christ Jesus. That's the gospel. And ultimately, it's, not, it's always been this way. Satan's goal is to get you to question God and his goodness and his faithfulness. To question whether you're secure in that. He's going to do it through circumstances, and he's going to do it through other people. D, a life that is worthy of the Lord and pleasing to him overflows in thankfulness towards the Father. This is how we can be thankful in and for everything, because the gospel hasn't changed. Our relationship to God through the gospel hasn't changed. And when we submit, you see on your handout, when we submit to God as an act of worship, you acknowledge God's authority over your life and that, and, that, and that He can do whatever He wants and we're free to do whatever He calls us to do. Why? Because He's good. If we were to go over to 2 Corinthians 9, Paul is defending his ministry in 2 Corinthians throughout it. He's defending his apostleship. He's, he's talking about all his troubles and all the stuff he went through. It's interesting, he says... He goes back to the gospel and he says, to, verse 13, Because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberation, liberality of your contribution to them, while they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Again, where is his joy sourced? It's in the gospel. And look what he says in verse 15, and I love it. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Why could Paul put up with people who were persecuting him? Why could Paul put up with the beatings and the shipwrecks and all these things and keep marching on? Because of the gospel. Because of the indescribable gift that God had given to him in Christ dying for his sins. And, and all throughout the Bible, if you were to search through the Bible, God always equates ingratitude with idolatry. One of the sins that God marks out more than any, especially in his people, is ingratitude. Simple ingratitude. You go to Romans 1.21, For although they knew God, they did not glorify him, nor give thanks to him. Therefore, he gave them over to a depraved mind. Simply didn't give thanks. Think about that. What, what got Israel in trouble in the, in the wilderness? Grumbling. Grumbling. What, what's probably a subtle sin that marks all of our lives? That we don't deal with, that we don't, that we don't persecute, that we don't attack, that we don't even repent of. Ingratitude to God. Ingratitude to God. Simple ingratitude. Why? Because we haven't understood the gospel. When we understand that we were dead and God raised us from the dead and gave us a hope and a future, how do you that's how sinful we are. That's how depraved we are and how much we need God that we would turn our backs on that God, that we would grow cold to that God. 
And all throughout the Bible, all the way back to Deuteronomy 6, we've seen it. When I take you into this land filled with milk and honey and houses you didn't build and cisterns you didn't dig, don't forget me. Guess what they did? They forgot him. Go all the way to the end in Revelation. This church did all these great things. What did God have against them? You lost your first love. You did a lot of stuff. You just grew cold. You didn't love me. Look, look at even Colossians 2.7. I promise we'll get there eventually. Having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith. Listen, just as you were instructed and overflowing with what? Gratitude. Listen, all of this is in the gospel. And, that, and that's point three on your handout. The source of our lives is the truth that God's grace and through our faith, God has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. By grace, through faith, God has qualified us. He says, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness, verse 13, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Do not move from the gospel. Everything is sourced in the gospel. And, and we don't have time, but this is sourced, again, in Exodus 6. Exodus 6 accounts God rescuing Israel from Egypt. They were in bondage. They were in slavery to Egypt. And God set them free through His mighty acts. And if you were to go to Isaiah, Isaiah continually says there's coming another exodus. He points back to that exodus. And he says there's coming another exodus. Again, that's you and I having been delivered from the bondage of our sins. And the interesting thing there, if you were to go to Exodus 8 verse 1, if you were to go to Exodus 9 verse 1, a key phrase, key phrase, and it's humbling, but it says this. God says, I will set them free so that they will serve themselves. That's not what it says. If you go to Exodus 8.1, Exodus 9.1, he says, I'm going to set them free that they will serve me. Think about that. God set them free in order to captivate them with a greater master, namely himself, that you would serve him. That's a privilege. Privilege. He didn't set them free and just let them go. He set them free so that they would be able to serve the one true king in Jesus Christ whom he sent. That's Christianity. Because in our sinful state, we can't do that. We get to serve God. And the, you, you, see, you see real quickly there on your handouts, Christ has a unique authority over us. Please, please hear that. He has every right to demand anything he wants of our lives because he has bought us. Not only that, you see here in this passage that Christ is the messianic savior that the promise that God that the Bible promised would come. If you were to go to 2 Samuel 7, he is the one that God promised would be the eternal ruler on the Davidic throne. That's Jesus. See, God the Father is the hero in our salvation. Listen, the gospel is a rescue. It's a rescue. And we've been delivered not to serve self and not to live for self, but to serve God by giving our lives for Him. And what we're reminded of in this text is that we are saved by grace and we live by grace. So I want to ask real quick, I want to get us out of here. If you just, just points to just reflect on. Because again, Paul is praying this about a people that he's never met. And it made me think. Think about this. You see it on your handout. Do your prayers reflect a God-centeredness or a self-centeredness? When's the last time? What, what, what constitutes most of your prayers? Is it about you? Is it about temporal things? Is it about earthly things? Are you praying about spiritual things? You're praying about gospel-centered things. 
In, in a, a gentleman named Peterson, in his book, Answering God, the Psalms as Tools for Prayer, listen to what he says. Left to ourselves, we are never more selfish than when we pray. With God as the great sympathizer, the great giver, the great promiser, we go to our knees and indulge every impulse for gratification. Paul never once prayed for himself here. There's nothing temporal here. Paul prayed gospel-centered prayers. He's in prison. Doesn't pray for his release. Doesn't pray for any of those things. Gospel-centered things. And listen, our prayers, as challenging as it may be to hear, our prayers are simply a reflection of our hearts. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I'll take it further. Where your treasure is, there your prayers will be also. Based on, look at number two, based on what we have seen here and reflecting on your life, in what ways is your understanding or lack of understanding of the gospel reflected in your life? Do you have a God confidence or a self-confidence? Would you say that you have a knowledge of God right now that is growing, or you have a knowledge of God that's living off of day-old bread? When people look at your life, do they see a trust in God, or do they see a self-sufficiency? Would you say that you're living a life that's in light of what God has done through Jesus Christ? Or is it world-centered? Is it world-focused? And, and I would close with this question. You see it on hand. It is your life focused on the worship of our great God and His mighty acts? Focused on it. That you've been transferred to a new kingdom. That you've been resurrected from the dead spiritually, believer. That, that you're owned by a new king. And, and how might your lack of understanding and growth be affecting your usefulness? You know, Jim Hampton served in the military. They, they train them. They don't take them in there and say, well, we're just going to rely on physical ability. You know what they do? They train them. They train them. Why? So they'll be useful. You don't want to give Chris Basham a gun and just say, hey, go out there and go get them, buddy. No, 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 no. You train him. He's laughing back there. You'll see tonight with Nerf gun. You don't want, I can't even hit with a Nerf gun. But see, listen, in Christ, we got to grow up. We're to be mature and complete. We're to grow up in respect of salvation, it says, over and over. In 1 Peter 2, 2, it says, Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in respects to salvation. Grow up. Some of us, some of us have been babies way too long. And, and God's kingdom needs believers who are growing up that they would be useful. That they would be useful soldiers. Lord, take these words and get me out of it. That any 